Great. Uh, hello and welcome to the Earthquake Science Center seminar series for June 16th, 2021. As a reminder, please turn off your cameras and mute your microphones. Uh, these functions are available through the menu bar at the top of your Teams window. Uh, live captioning is also available if you click the three dot more button and choose turn on live captions. Before we begin today, I have a couple announcements. Uh, next week's seminar will be presented by Alexis Cartwright-Taylor the, from the University of Edinburgh. The next ESC All Hands meeting is Friday, July 9th. Uh, and finally, Steve Hickman's virtual thank you party is coming up on June 24th, and we hope you'll join us for that. If you'd like to sign the virtual thank you card, please do so by June 23rd. You can do that via the link in the email from Shane yesterday or by contacting him directly. Today, our speaker is Joanna Dill from the Environmental Analysis Program at Pomona College. If you have any questions for her, you can either type them into the chat or raise your hand. We'll be monitoring the chat and reading out the questions at the end of the talk. Uh, at that point, feel free to unmute yourself and turn on your video to chime in and talk to the speaker yourself when we call on you. Uh, Joanna is also she's willing to stick around for an informal conversation after the end of her talk, so please feel free to join us for that if you're interested. And I'll hand it over now to Austin Elliott, who will be introducing your speaker. All right, thanks, Chad. It's my honor today to introduce Dr. Joanna Dill. Joanna is an environmental historian who looks at history through a critical lens that views cities as the interconnected urban ecosystems that they are, with a focus on how natural forces interface with and disrupt these environments. Her research looks at how disasters arise through the interplay between natural and unnatural networks around us. Joanna earned her BA from Stanford University and her master's and PhD in history from Princeton University, where she discovered the field of environmental history. She's the author of Seismic City, an environmental history of San Francisco's 1906 earthquake, which was published by the University of Washington Press in 2017. Seismic City received the Martin Ridge Award for the best book on California history, emphasizing the 20th century from the Historical Society of Southern California. Dill has also been a fellow at the Copeland Colloquium at Amherst College and was the recipient of the Rachel Carson Prize for the best dissertation from the American Society for Environmental History. She's taught both history and environmental studies at a number of colleges and universities and is currently a lecturer in the environmental analysis program at Pomona College. We're glad to have Joanna present to us today on topics that are important to us as both scientists in the realm of seismic hazard and as denizens of places that we must reckon with how we mitigate both the natural and unnatural elements of disasters that we face. Joanna's talk is entitled Patterns in Bay Area Earthquake History and I will now hand over the floor. Welcome, Joanna. Thanks, Austin, and thank you so much for inviting me and everyone for attending. Um, so I'm going to share my screen. All right, and let me know if um, anything goes wrong. <laughs> um, looks great. Looks great, all right. So what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna very briefly outline some of the overall arguments of Seismic City, and very, very briefly, um, the sort of um, parameters of the 1906 disaster. And then I'm gonna focus in on two patterns, um, both of this disaster and that are common across, um, across disasters in both the Bay Area and more broadly in the United States. Um, and those are inequality and environmental injustice, and then a failure to learn and to communicate lessons from past earthquakes or past disasters. So to start off, um, at 5.12 in the morning on April 18, 1906, a magnitude 7.8 earthquake on the San Andreas Fault shook the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and most of you are probably very familiar with the this sort of basics of this disaster, but I did want to show a few of the historical images here, um, which I think are particularly interesting. And the photographs of 1906 are really an amazing resource. This is one of the first 
um, such events where individuals had the capacity to do photography themselves. Um, and there's just a tremendous archive of images. Um, so this shows um, earthquake damage at Embarcadero and Lombard Streets um, in San Francisco. This one was called The Drunken Row, and it shows damaged homes um, on Howard between 17th and 18th Streets. And then this one shows the Valencia Street Hotel um, in the Mission District on Valencia between 18th and 19th Streets, um, where several hundred people died uh, when the hotel collapsed. This is a four-story hotel that literally sank into the ground um, because it was on the site of a former lake. Um, and all of these examples are um, areas of fill um, in San Francisco. Um, this one shows um, the earthquake damage um, downtown, L less severe damage clearly, but you can see the smoke rising in the background. And that of course is crucial because the earthquake was only one element of the disaster in 1906. Uh, within minutes, fires broke out around the city um, and the earthquake had shattered the pipes of the city's water distribution system, both um, the main conduits into the city and pipes within the city. Um, so this meant that there was no water with which to fight the fires in San Francisco. So as a result, flames swept through the city for three days, um, destroying ultimately 514 city blocks and 28,000 buildings, um, including the main commercial districts and both working class and wealthy residential districts. 80% of the property value in the city was destroyed. Um, and on a human scale, the disaster killed more than 3,000 people and left approximately 250,000 people, at least temporarily homeless, which is more than half of the population of San Francisco in 1906. So in Seismic City, I argue that the disaster in all of its elements, earthquake, fire, and recovery, profoundly disrupted the urban order, um, both the environmental and the social order. And it's important to note that I see the earthquake, fire, and the recovery not as a discrete event, um, but as a longer process linked to historical choices and linked to the longer history of the city so that we can't separate out you know, April 18th, 1906, or even, you know, the three days of the fire or the, you know, the few years of recovery um, from that longer history. And this is a, a real difference from how the, the story is often told. Um, another key argument of the book is that to most San Franciscans, this disorder after the disaster or of the disaster demanded the reassertion of the control over nature that they saw as characteristic of the modern city. Elites also sought to reassert control over people, particularly working class people who interacted with nature in different ways and who challenged assumptions about relief efforts and rebuilding. Ultimately, the processes of recovery and rebuilding reshaped the urban landscape in deeply unequal ways and reinscribed power relations in San Francisco. Recovery and rebuilding also represented a recommitment to the city of San Francisco and to modern technologies with their promise of control over nature. There is a persistent belief in technology and the ability of the city to transcend natural forces. And that led San Franciscans to reject a fundamental rethinking of the relationship between the city and its natural environment. As a result, the rebuilding concealed natural hazards such as made land rather than eliminating them or even really trying to mitigate them. And residents chose to tacitly accept that unstable nature um, of San Francisco. And I would argue that we still live in, in a very similar moment um, in terms of our perception of, of cities and natural hazards such as, as earthquakes. So, as I mentioned, I'm going to focus on two patterns that I think transcend the specific crisis of 1906 and can be found across a variety of disasters and across Bay Area earthquake history. I do want to mention that Seismic City also makes a series of arguments about urban environmental history and the place of nature in the city more broadly. And I'd be happy to talk more about that during the question and answer session. Um, and I'd also would be happy to talk more about the role of history and understanding disasters um, and disasters in 
in historical narratives. Um, but I don't, you know, in the interest of you know, trying to be coherent and um, keep this relatively short, I'm going to focus in on those two, um, two themes that I mentioned earlier. So the first of those themes is the theme of inequality and environmental injustice. And the worst tragedies of 1906 occurred with the collapsed rooming houses like the Valencia Street Hotel. Um, at least in addition to that one, at least six um, of these large rooming houses collapsed in the South of Market District. Um, those burned, um, whereas the Valencia Street Hotel did not burn as quickly. Um, so that's why there's the better record in terms of photography and, and things like that at Valencia Street Hotel. But hundreds of people died in these rooming, um, rooming house collapses. And these were working class people um, who could, you know, could only afford to live in one of these single rooms in one of these hotels. Um, the, the crisis also saw the devastation of working class neighborhoods like Chinatown and the Latin Quarter that were destroyed by both the earthquake and the fire. However, in a lot of ways, the fire in particular was relatively indiscriminate in its destruction. Very few structures um, could stand against the intensity of the fire in 1906. Um, so the downtown business district, the mansions of Knob Hill, um, those were wiped out along with working class and middle class homes. Um, however, social inequality, particularly along lines of class and race, became more, more central um, or was exacerbated um, in the aftermath of the fire and during the city's rebuilding, much more so than in the, you know, even in, than in the crisis itself or the immediate um, crisis. And one of the contributions of Seismic City is its close study of the city's recovery and rebuilding, the process of putting the city back together, um, which has received far too little attention in literature on disasters. And these processes of recovery and rebuilding reflected and refracted power relations in the city as different groups sought to assert their visions for the rebuilt San Francisco. I draw on concepts of vulnerability and environmental injustice to analyze the city as contested terrain in the aftermath of the earthquake and fire. And I want to briefly talk about two examples from Seismic City that um, illustrate this. First is the experience of people displaced by this, the, the disaster who were called refugees at the time. And as a side note, um, unlike displaced people after Hurricane Katrina and more modern disasters, people in 1906 embraced the term refugees. Um, so I'm following the terminology of the time in using that, using that term. And this is one of my favorite images that I uncovered. Um, it's a makeshift shelter and the sign there says um, a return to nature and it's a sarcastic comment on a, a literature from you know, middle class and upper class people who um, express the idea that it would be healthy for working class people to you know, be out in nature um, in the aftermath of the, um, of the earthquake and fire, that this, this would be healthy outdoor living. Um, and over the summer, um, as uh, more well-off people were able to find places to live, um, tens of thousands of people remained displaced, and they lived in formal and informal refugee camps around the city. This would be an example of one of those informal um, refugee, um, refugee housing um, efforts. Here's one of the more formal ones, um, this is the Harborview Refugee Tent Camp. And the residents of these tent camps in particular organized to protest conditions there, which ranged from leaky tents to inadequate food. And the refugees were particularly incensed over the unequal distribution of relief funds. Newspapers announced how charitably minded Americans and people from around the world had donated $6 million for the relief of San Francisco. And refugees argued that they were not getting their fair share. They called for equal distribution of the money to all San Franciscans as well as assistance that would allow them to purchase homes. Women played central roles in the refugee mobilization. And chapter three of Seismic City follows the experiences of Mary Kelly, a working class woman in her 50s who became a prominent leader of the movement and who wrote a scathing account of her experiences as a refugee. 
And that is almost certainly Mary Kelly standing in the doorway of um, one of the earthquake cottages that replaced the tents um, during this demonstration. Um, and these cottages, although they may look like you know, decent housing, they had no insulation, they had no internal finishes, they had no toilets, and refugees were charged rent to live in them. Um, and many of these refugees, of course, were out of work in the, um, particularly women who'd lost, men could get more you know, work clearing the rubble, essentially, that, that women could not get. Um, one year later, in the fall of 1907, cottage residents were forced to find the resources to move their cottages out of San Francisco's public parks. Many of them, of course, could not afford to move, and even those who were able to ended up living in clusters of poor families on the outskirts of the city. Only 40% of the relocated cottages had access to city water mains, and only 15% had toilets. So we're still talking about really substandard living conditions for people who had been displaced by the earthquake and fire. In contrast to the situation of the refugees, substantial grants to rebuild homes or businesses um, were given to people who could prove their quote unquote worthiness through a history of home ownership or business experience. So there was a very um, class delimited you know, set of um, relief offered to people. And ultimately this unequal distribution of relief you know, really reinforced and exacerbated social inequality in San Francisco, despite the efforts of activists like Mary Kelly. And in fact, the relief, I argue, was far more inequitable than the earthquake or the fire. And this has been a very common pattern after disasters in the United States. Um, so it's not just a case in 1906, but something that recurs repeatedly through um, the history of disasters. Turning to my next example, um, this one challenges simple assumptions about vulnerability after a disaster. Um, and this was a proposal to relocate Chinatown out of the center of San Francisco. So moving it from its, its prime location, where it still is today, um, to Hunter's Point on the outskirts of the city and um, adjacent to Butchertown and other noxious industries. Um, so in 1906, as um, continued through, you know, through the 20th century, um, Hunter's Point was undesirable real estate within, um, within the Bay Area, within San Francisco. Um, to many white residents of San Francisco after um, the earthquake and fire, this total destruction of Chinatown seemed like an opportunity to improve the city by relocating what they saw as the quote unquote blight of Chinatown. Um, white San Franciscans had long perceived Chinatown as a sanitary nuisance, scapegoating the neighborhood based on assumptions about environmental conditions there and about Chinese people. This was part of the construction of the neighborhood as racialized space, um, which included the belief that marginalized people belonged in inferior and polluted environments, which is a foundation of environmental racism um, and one that, that persists to this day as well. So the fire had removed um, both the structures of Chinatown and had forced out the people who many white San Franciscans saw as making Chinatown into inferior terrain, um, leaving only this prime location adjacent to downtown. Um, the magazine, the Overland Monthly, declared, quote, fire has reclaimed the civilization and cleanliness, the Chinese ghetto. No Chinatown will be permitted in the borders of the city. Um, so this was the, uh, the assumption of what would happen with the rebuilding, right? That Chinatown would be relocated. We can also think about this proposed relocation as an environmental justice issue in that it represented the attempted seizure of land by white San Franciscans from residents of color, which of course is a, is a long pattern um, in US history. Um, and here's a, a 20th century urban example of something which is, um, often been seen as part of an earlier history and a more of a rural history. It's hard to overstate the racism toward the Chinese in 1906. The Chinese Exclusion Act was not only still in effect, 
but it had just been made permanent in 1902. And the leaders of both of the major political factions in the city strongly opposed Asian immigration. Discrimination and even violence were regular experiences of Chinese residents of San Francisco in these years. However, the Chinese reacted rapidly to calls to relocate their neighborhood. They formed alliances with white landlords who owned most of the property in Chinatown. Um, the Chinese were good tenants um, and they could, they could be charged a lot because they couldn't rent in much of the city. Um, the Chinese also drew on economic leverage, so they threatened to redirect lucrative trade with China to other Pacific Coast cities if San Francisco followed through on this proposal to relocate Chinatown. And they marshaled diplomatic allies. Um, so Chinese diplomats traveled to California and met with both local and state officials in the process expressing their dissatisfaction with the proposed new sites for Chinatown. Um, this quote here is from a wealthy merchant um, who declared right, the earthquake and fire treated all alike. We are going back to our own as other property owners are. And he was following an exa the example set by the Chinese consulate in declaring that they would rebuild rather than leave the neighborhood. Um, and it's an interesting, almost an ironic case here that because the Chinese Exclusion Act had largely prevented um, Chinese residents of the United States from becoming citizens. Um, the Chinese maintained close diplomatic ties, political ties to China, and were able to marshal those um, in defense of, of Chinatown after 1906. So ultimately, the alliance of Chinese political leaders, Chinatown merchants, and white landlords proved more powerful than racial fears and stereotypes, and Chinatown maintained its longstanding location. This victory, I argue, challenges simple assumptions about vulnerability in the wake of disaster, showing how a marginalized community could marshal power and successfully assert its vision of the city. I think I have a new slide for this, yeah. <laughs> um, it also showed the difficulty of transforming urban space in the context of disaster. So contrary to the assumptions of many people at the time, Chinatown had not become a blank slate that could be easily seized and remade by white elites. The Chinese were no different from many other San Franciscans in wanting to rebuild the city much as it had been before the earthquake and fire. And in this case, I think we would all look at that and say it's a, you know, a positive victory that they were able to maintain um, Chinatown in its historical location. However, um, this commitment to, you know, to the city as it, as it had been, to rebuilding um, along the, the traditional lines of San Francisco certainly had its advantages. It also had significant downsides. Um, and one of the things that struck me in researching the history of major earthquakes in the Bay Area is the pattern of ignoring the lessons um, of quake, you know, the lessons learned from each earthquake during the rebuilding process um, in its immediate aftermath. Um, and this occurs despite explicit statements about those lessons, um, despite you know, assertions that people will rebuild in a much safer way, that people will um, protect against some, you know, future similar damages. Um, and those narratives exist alongside you know, narratives of denial that have sometimes been emphasized um, in scholarship on 1906 in particular. I think there's also an assumption from people who haven't studied the history that failure to take actions, take precautions in the past stemmed solely from a lack of knowledge. So people didn't you know, take precautions after 1868 because they didn't know much about the science of earthquakes. And they didn't, um, but the, they knew enough and they saw enough um, about the hazards of made land that it's very clear that they could have um, taken many more precautions than they did. One quote of, among many that speaks to this um, is a quote from a physician and writer named J.B.D. Stillman um, in 1868 after that earthquake. Um, and he wrote, all past experience tells us that the made lands and estuaries of the bay that have been filled up with mud 
may be severely shaken by earthquakes that will pass harmlessly through the firmer ground. And again, this is just one of many similar observations. And San Francisco newspapers were calling for precautionary measures to protect the urban environment against future earthquakes after the 1868 quake. Um, however, those did not come to pass. Um, we see a very similar um, dynamic in the aftermath of 1906 with the calls for precautionary measures balanced against a denial of risk. Um, one quote that it um, you know, speaks to this initial assumption that people would take precautionary measures is from a labor newspaper from May of 1906 that declared its certainty that, quote, new building laws will provide for the thoroughly earthquake and fireproof structures within the burned district, um, which did not come to pass. There's also a very interesting narrative in the scientific studies after 1906 um, that what they call good buildings, um, well-built buildings survived. And there's obviously some truth to that, but it also reflected desires to assign meaning to the disaster and to reassert the ability of technology to protect against seismic forces. And one of the things that I think is telling about um, that aspect of this literature are statements by a couple of these scientists, by engineering professor Charles Derleth Jr who stated that damage in nature, um, as well as damage in the urban environment, reflected, quote, weak and strong construction. Um, and one by Richard Humphrey, who was with the USGS, um, doing a study in the, the impacts of the 1906 earthquake. Um, and he wrote about the damage to, quote, unsound redwood trees with defects such as dry, dry rot. So the way this same language um, was applied to trees as well as buildings, um, shows how this narrative served to make sense of the damage, to offer moral justifications um, for the effects of the earthquake, rather than being a dispassionate scientific assessment. Um, some examples of the failures to take precautions after 1906, and these were often justifiable um, in some ways, but they also um, reflected missed opportunities. Um, so one was in opposition to extending the fire limits, which of course would have increased the costs of rebuilding, particularly for working and middle-class homeowners, um, but which also would have you know, required precautions for the central district. Um, another is that the city allowed construction of unpermitted temporary structures, many of which remained in use for years. They did not turn out to be very temporary. Um, building codes were lightly enforced at best and were actually weakened after 1906 in San Francisco. Um, and there was a continued practice of filling in along the coastline to create more land, um, particularly at Mission Bay and on the city's north shore. Um, there was generally minimal attention paid to soil and ground conditions and little consideration for hazardous ground when rebuilding, despite, again, the, the very obvious evidence that um, fill or made land, as they called it a lot of the time, um, was where the worst damage took place. And this is a pretty familiar part of this history, but I think it's, it's worth reiterating that starting in 1912, um, construction of the Panama Pacific International Exposition along the North Shore of San Francisco involved the filling in of 184 acres of tidal marshes as well as Marina Cove, which you can kind of see in the background um, of this photograph from, from 1911. Um, some parts of Marina Cove required as much as 24 feet of fill. And this process of constructing the exposition really sort of reenacted land making along the shoreline, um, reenacted these processes of San Francisco's earlier development with almost no attention to the lessons of 1906. And of course, in 1989, um, the Loma Prieta earthquake damaged structures around the Bay Area with much of the worst damage occurring on the field lands of the Marina District, um, that site of the Panama Pacific International Exposition. Um, Seven buildings there collapsed entirely and another 63 had to be condemned. And this image of um, homeowners who were given just a few minutes to, to get their um, 
know, get some of their belongings out of um, condemned buildings in the Marina District struck me as, as very reminiscent of a lot of the photographs after 1906. Um, as I'm sure you all know, this damage was not a surprise to scientists. Um, and, you know, where it played out, manifestations like liquefaction, um, but it was a surprise to many residents and politicians. As one scientific article um, analyzing what happened in 1989 noted, quote, the area seismic vulnerability was not well known by residents in 1989, nor was it reflected in the city's emergency planning for earthquakes. So there was a real failure to translate scientific and expert knowledge regarding hazards into specific policies and into local awareness, um, just like with 1868, just like with 1906, um, just like with Hurricane Katrina, um, where again, there were no surprises to scientists of how that disaster played out, but there were tremendous surprises um, to residents of the city and to um, Americans in general. Unfortunately, um, I think these there are similar patterns that are persisting in the 21st century. Um, and one particular example of this is in the redevelopment of South of Market. Um, High-rise buildings in San Francisco and South of Market have not been a focus of building codes through this redevelopment process. And the New York Times um, quoted the longtime head of um, city planning board, um, saying that the issue of seismic safety of high-rises was, quote, never a factor in redevelopment plans of the South Market area. And one of the most dramatic examples of this um, is the case of the Millennium Tower, an upscale residential building completed in 2009 that has sunk a foot and a half and tilted 14 inches off-center. Um, the 58-story building was built on a deficient foundation that did not reach bedrock, and it was constructed using a concrete heavy design that weighs triple what a steel structure of a similar size would weigh. Um, in retrospect, it seems pretty clear that that was a poor design for um, a high-rise structure on the mainland of South of Market in San Francisco. And repairs um, will cost at least $100 million, uh, putting in piles that should have been you know, put in ahead of time, although that's better than some of the early assessments of how and if one might be able to fix the Millennium Tower. Um, and I think there's other, unfortunately, other examples as well, maybe less dramatic than that one, um, that there's still a failure to, to really fully you know, assimilate and um, implement the kind of precautions that um, should be taken. And, the, and that history and this, you know, history of earthquakes in San Francisco um, would call for. So I'm going to stop there. I think I'm actually a little bit under time, which is rare for me, um, and see what you have in the way of questions. If I can figure out how to unshare this. <laughs> Great. Uh Thanks so much, Joanna, for that fascinating presentation. Uh, we have time now for questions. Uh, so if you have any questions for the speaker, please either raise your hand and we'll call on you to unmute, uh, or you can type them into the chat and I will read them out. So does anybody have any questions to start us off here? Austin, why don't we start with you since you uh, are the host, and then we'll dive into the <laughs> Well, hands. I don't mean to uh, jump in front of the line here, but um, and and maybe this is quite a wide-ranging question. Thanks for the talk, Joanna. But um, I want to ask about you. You you touched on this at the end, this sort of point that there are abundant examples of the science kind of not making it into policy, and as the scientists, I think. That's very frustrating, um, but again, it's uh, it, it, to some degree it's out of our realm to do the policy side of it. But of course, interfacing with people who do the policy is crucial because that's how this happens. And so, I wonder if, from your own research, uh, or looking at this or other disasters, are there examples 
where the science has been successfully incorporated into policy and what sort of confluence of factors or mm-hmm. efforts did that require? I mean, recognizing that, as your book illustrates, these are all really politically complex issues because there's so many different parties with different interests. What kind of tools need to come together to get some of the basic science stuff implemented in policy? Yeah, that's a great question. And unfortunately, I don't have a good answer. (laughs) Um, I figured it was kind of a little broad. (laughs) Yeah. um, There probably probably are examples. I can't think of any off the top of my head where that has has gone really well. And I think there's a particular challenge um, with earthquakes um, in the way that, that earthquake you know, policy, in fact, says has has been kept very much in the realm of experts and scientific expertise. And unlike a lot of environmental issues, it hasn't had an element of popular mobilization. Um, and there are certainly, you know, living in California at times, right, there are definitely cases where, you know, lots of articles in the newspapers at certain times of year about, or in the case of a disaster, lots of you know, articles about the, you know, what's happening about the science. Um, but those don't necessarily, you know, translate and reach people. And I think that's a real challenge. And it's a it's a real ongoing challenge. Um, that was definitely a factor, you know, in San Francisco, after, you know, between 1868 and 1906, the turnover of people in the city, you know, was tremendous. So you have really interesting um you know, quotes, there's a quote from Rudyard Kipling who visited the city. And if you talk to an old timer, they'll tell you about the risks of Phil and they'll tell you about which neighborhoods are, are built on Phil. But then of course you only have, you have so many new, you know, people coming into the city um, whose focus is, is not on that. And, you know, because um, large earthquakes happen, you know, rarely in human time, regularly in geological time to some degree, um, you have these long, you know, these long intervals without one that then it's hard to keep that sense of urgency. Um, so I think, it, I think it's a real challenge. It, it um, strikes me something I mentioned in the conclusion of, of my book as well, which in hazard plans, which are, they're getting much better, right? As, as you all know, the, you know, much better mapping of hazards, um, you know, real efforts to, you know, to make changes um, in terms of earthquakes in California, in particular, you know, retrofit plans for the, you know, the riskiest types of buildings. Um, but the, I don't know if I remember the numbers exactly, um, but that in, in San Francisco Hazard Plan, there's like a 30-year plan to retrofit, um, I think it's the soft story apartment buildings. And there's also a 63% chance of a major earthquake within that 30-year period um, before the retrofits are finished. So there's still that disconnect. And it's it's really difficult because obviously we can't, you know, retrofit every building instantly because um, it does require tremendous resources. But there's also, I think, an ongoing, you know, failure to dedicate those resources even in a wealthy city like San Francisco, and it's worse in, um, in poorer cities and um, San Bernardino in Southern California near where I live. Um, they, they know that the city hall will collapse if there's a quake on the San Andreas Fault. And a few years ago when there was a cluster of quakes down by the Salton Sea that, that slightly increased um, the likelihood of a quake on the Southern section of the San Andreas Fault, they literally closed city hall for a few days because of that slight increase in risk. Um, and because they basically know that building is coming down and yet there's no resources to, um, you know, to retrofit it or to, to rebuild something new so that if a quake happens with no warning, which, um, is, is probably the most likely scenario, um, you know, the people working in that building and and many other structures, um, are are at great risk. So I don't have a great answer to that, but I do think that that problem is still can very, I, very, very Can I ask maybe a more, a more specific question? I don't want to take more time from other people questioning, but re- related to this, and maybe it's a leading question, but are there, is there a role for historians to play in essentially establishing what these problems are going to be and kind of help guide how that mythologizing about what 
what the impacts of a disaster are, you know, can historians come in and sort of play a role in saying, hey, this is the reality of what's going to happen. It's not just going to be this fancy thing you imagine. I, I, how might that? Yeah, and and I think um, I think there's a couple of roles historians can play. Um, one is that history, more than a lot of disciplines, is still pretty accessible to to a great degree. Historians tell stories, <laughs> um, and I I like to think that my book could be you know read and enjoyed by almost any educated person, and you know not a ton of jargon. It's not like a scientific article that. Um, you know, most most lay people will will struggle to to read and assimilate. Um, so I think history has a, a potential role there in terms of bridging some of that gap of communication and sort of conveying information in a way that's that's more accessible. Um, I think, in a broader sense, in terms of the discipline of history, we also need to do a better job of integrating disasters into our understanding of place and history, um, because the the perception of disasters as um, as unique events, as these sort of, you know, unprecedented events, um, sort of situates them outside the normal flow of history. Um, and there's a, a great quote from an anthropologist after Hurricane Katrina that this, this was completely unprecedented and there was no, you know, no possible model. And of course, you know, San Francisco in 1906 is just one of many examples of these past disasters um, that had a similar scale, you know, different different specifics, but a similar scale in terms of their impacts. So disasters aren't unprecedented. Right? They they are sort of part of, you know, part of our history and part of our, um, you know, part of the story of a place like San Francisco or New Orleans. Um, and we we live in a rather disaster prone country, actually, <laughs> um, as you you probably all know in the United States. Um, but integrating those more into our histories and not seeing them as exceptional events that maybe deserve a sentence, but aren't sort of central, you know, to our to our stories that we tell about our country um, or about a place like San Francisco, um, I think can can serve a role there as well. And for all the you know books that have been written about the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, it's one of the most high profile disasters in U.S. history it still will sometimes be only a sentence or a paragraph in a history of the city, um, won't show up at all in an American history textbook. Um, maybe it'll, you know, maybe it'll get a sentence. Um, so more fully integrating disasters into our thinking about the past and into our thinking about places, I think could have a role in terms of um, making people more aware of, of risks. Um, Michael Diggles, I think you were the next on the list, uh, raising your hand if you want to jump in. Yeah, um, a really quick preface. So we live in Oakland, a uh, really diverse town. Uh, mm -hmm. When my daughter got out of high school, 80% uh, of the students in her high school got into four-year universities, the other 20 got into JCs. There was one other white kid. We are very proud of Oakland. Um, she's now finished her master's and is working. But anyhow, when she started middle school, I she went to Montero Middle School, which is right up on the Hayward Fault above Highway 13. I wandered up to the campus and I tried really hard to hold my tongue and be diplomatic and not throw Mr. USGS around much. Uh, okay, a little bit. Um, you know, I didn't wear the blue, the, the green jacket and the baseball cap. Anyhow, um, the principal showed me around their earthquake preparedness stuff. They had a Connex container out in the soccer field, and she, the, the first alarm went off when she went to get the key to the box, and it was in a little bowl on her desk. And that bowl was going to fly across the room, you know, and she'd never find the key. Okay, so fine. We went out there and unlocked the thing, and there were. She was proud to point out eight 55-gallon barrels full of water. I thought, well, you know, you have 800 students here, and 
well, you know, if there's an earthquake, everybody will just go home. Well, if they go home and there is a home, that's not the event I'm talking about. They're not only going to go home, find there's no home, they're going to come back and they're going to bring their parents and siblings with them. Uh, so I got another, I got 1200 bucks from the parents committee and I tripled it. I got a whole bunch of barrels. They showed up on a flatbed truck. I borrowed a PE class and we mowed them all down. But the pitch I made, and this was shortly after Katrina, was that we do after all live in Oakland. So the whole idea of a 72 hour preparedness is fine. Unless you have a lot of blacks in your town, then you better be th looking at seven days. Witness Katrina. Mm. That was us. We're in Oakland. So, yeah, we tried to design around a seven day uh, getting any relief because we have blacks in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And I was that blatant about it, despite being a, you know, privileged white guy. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, I actually used to live on Broadway Terrace, just north of the, well, I was actually pretty up high, um, north of the 13 in Oakland. So I love Oakland, too. Um, it's a great city. Um, yeah. And in addition to all of that, if there's a, that quake on the Haywood Fault, the, the 13 is going to go down. We saw what happened in 1989 um, with the freeways. Um, in Oakland, um, down at, so yeah, getting the getting the kids home is going to be a lot harder than they anticipated. And um, as you noted, a lot of um, structural damage is is going to result from from that quake. Um, and yeah, the severity of um, you know of a major quake on the Hayward Fault um, or the San Andreas, it, it is going to leave. It is going to create real challenges for bringing in, um, bringing in aid. I wouldn't, and again, you would probably know better than me, but I would be concerned about both Oakland and San Francisco international airports being on fill along the coast um, on how those would, would handle a major quake. Um, San Francisco got a bit lucky in 1906 um, that the train tracks actually held up. So they were able to get aid into the city quickly um, via the trains. Um, aid was leaving, you know, leaving Los Angeles basically the day of the quake, um, you know, to get there. So they were able to get um, some of that basic relief in um, pretty quickly. I would imagine we could get basic relief in again pretty quickly now through the, through the air if necessary. Um, or, or again, be a train if that you know would would still work out. Um, but yeah, I don't think people um, are aware of the, of the level of preparation that that they should have. People or institutions. So, and I'm not sure if all of the schools have have ever been um, you know fully fully retrofitted in um, in California, despite. You know, legislation along those lines and retrofits also can sometimes retrofits can fail the um, freeways that collapsed in Oakland in 1989 had actually been retrofitted um, and those retrofits turned out to be um, you know, to be unsuccessful so there can also be a bit of a false um, sense of security sometimes from retrofits Andy, Michael, do you want to ask your question? Yep. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, it's really great to go over the this history, which is very familiar to a lot of us, but with a different lens. Um, you know, some of the history of, and, you know, before your work was not aware of why Chinatown was rebuilt um, mm -hmm. and what it took to do that, that it wasn't, I think the mythology is that they, just rebuilt it quickly to establish themselves, but obviously it took a lot more. One thing that, that struck me was when you're discussing how the aid was inequitably distributed, which was just actually highlighted in your Times article I put in the chat um, mm. after hurricanes. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're very underinsured on earthquakes. Um, we arguably fail to have insurance policies that should compel people to take them. Um, you would not find very widespread um, uptake of earthquake insurance among this audience. 
and many would argue, would argue that it's a it's a bad deal. But it strikes me that that then puts us in a situation where a lot of homeowners who, um, you know, actually could afford it and put a, put that money into earthquake insurance will then be looking to FEMA for aid, taking up the the funds. So I almost wonder if this is actually sort of a just systemic issue that we fail to develop effective earthquake insurance to put the load on homeowners, which will then prevent us from providing aid to um, to renters and people who are not homeowners. I, I just wonder if there's anything to be done about that. Um, that might be a little far afield, but it sort of struck me in your in the story. Yeah, um, and I think there's, and I'm more, actually more familiar with this with hurricanes and Florida because I used to live in Tampa and the only insurers that basically you could get for homes in Tampa, and this is true for most of, of coastal Florida, um, are sort of state insurers of last resort. The big, you know, State Farm, Allstate, the big, you know, national firms won't insure homes in Florida because of the, the risk of hurricanes. Um, so essentially, if a, if a major hurricane were to, you know, hit all of Florida, the odds that those insurers would be able to meet their obligations are basically zero. And I think that that may well be true with um, a lot of earthquake insurance in California as well. So you, we, we run into this dilemma that the, um, you know, the, the insurance companies that can actually sort of spread out that risk across um, a, a broader regional scale, right? So incorporating, you know, the, the way insurance is supposed to work of, of spreading risk, um, they're trying to dodge these, these disaster prone areas. Um, and avoid taking on that risk, um, thereby leaving, you know, insurance um, that actually will not, you know, manage to spread the risk to very many people or enough people who didn't experience a, a large regional disaster, right? And a, and a big earthquake is going to, like a like a major hurricane, is going to be a regional disaster, not just a, you know, a small local one, obviously. Um, so I think insurance is a big problem. Um, potentially, you could have you know, maybe the federal government step in in some way, but it's not like the National Flood Insurance Program has a very good history of, um, you know, mitigating disaster. It has more of a history of allowing people to rebuild in, in risky places over and over again. <laughs> um, I think they've tried to fix that, but I don't know that they've, that they've really succeeded. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a very difficult question in terms of insurance, um, and whether I think it's a question whether that sort of individual model is going to be very effective, given that the companies have gotten sort of better at better at figuring out what to what to exclude um, and where to exclude. The insurance companies they had a bad reputation after 1906, but they actually didn't do too badly in terms of how much. Um, you know, money they, they put into, into the rebuilding. Because um, they didn't, and this was in part because of the fire as well, they could exclude earthquake damage, but not, but not fire damage. And that's actually one reason why people after 1906 talked more about the fire was a very practical um, strategy to make sure the insurance companies had to, to pay up. Um, but I think insurance companies have sort of learned to dodge and they had a, a terrible record after Katrina in terms of um, paying people's claims. Yeah, after Sandy too. Well, it's interesting to know really this problem spans other disasters and about the flood insurance. And it, it strikes me that, yeah, we're, we're failing to fulfill our responsibilities to protect ourselves or to develop systems that allow us to protect ourselves um, instead of just relying on aid. So thanks. Mm -hmm. Maybe a sort of a tangentially related question in the chat from Michael Blampede. Uh, he asked, uh, you described how following 1906 money was uh, inequitably distributed, favoring worthy people who owned homes and businesses. Were these priorities spoken of publicly and explicitly by the leaders of the day, or did they try to enact these priorities quietly? Mm. Um, that's a great question. Um, they were, I would say they were 
somewhat explicit, but not, maybe not, maybe more just sort of widely known. Um, they had a, a whole set of sort of, um, you know, tiers of aid um, that, that people could apply for um, with really, you know, disproportionate, you know, amount of, um, of assistance offered. Um, it was definitely, you know, public enough to, to draw a protest from, you know, the refugees and from, you know, the people who saw themselves as, as not getting their fair share. Um, I'm trying to think, cause I've, cause I read sort of the, um, you know, sort of social workers reports on all of this. Um, and I'm not sure how explicit they were publicly about the different tiers, actually. That's a really great question. Um, but there's def there was definitely the sense of of this um, of this inequality, and there were some of the of the social workers who spoke out against it. Um, there's a quote from one who talked about very sarcastically about the sort of biblical principle that unto them that that have shall be given. Um, so some people did sort of push back against the sense that sort of the more you had before the earthquake, the more you should get in terms of of aid. Um, but you know, they, those were sort of the, the counter voices to the, the overall trend that said if you could, you know, yeah, prove. And there, and there were a lot of criticism also of people who um, sort of tried to work this system by, you know, starting a business or, you know, buying a lot and putting 10% down and saying, oh, actually, see, I, I do own land. <laughs> you should give me enough to build, you know, build a house on this land. Um, and these people were, you know, were criticized. And you could also look at them and say, okay, this was, this was a smart strategy to, um, try to you know move up into these these hierarchies, but there was this sense of sort of who's who's deserving and worthy, and um, that's what I think is also a, a you know common thread in U.S. history, um, is, and we're seeing it now in in the pandemic actually um, in terms of unemployment aid. This sense of sort of who's who's deserving and what you know makes you deserving of assistance um, has been a I think a, a you know, trend that has reinforced inequality at times when we could have um, prioritized assisting the, the people most in need. Uh, Bruce Chaffee, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, interesting talk, and I like how it forced me to think outside the scientific box into a, a broader perspective. Um, I study tsunamis in in for tsunamis, one of the things that's done, not enough, but it's done a bit, especially in Japan, is monuments after mm. a disaster to, to remind people that, you know, these things do happen, although they're infrequent. Is, is that happen with earthquakes that you know of? Mm. Not too much, I don't think. Um, there's at least one monument in San Francisco. Um, and I believe there are markings um, along the original shoreline in San Francisco um, in some places on the ground, but you'd have to know, like you would, you would have to know to look for them to notice them. Um, usually the, you know, rebuilding has, at least in, in the case of San Francisco, has been just, you know, get it rebuilt as thoroughly and, and quickly as possible. Um, there are some of the old refugee cottages that have survived. I think there's one at the Presidio um, that that you know that one can sort of visit and look at. So that's you know kind of a monument. Um, but there's not very many. Um, and it it reminds me of a of a case from Hayward that some of you are probably familiar with, where there was a curb that showed the movement of the Hayward fault that scientists had been sort of watching for. Um, you know, at least decades and sort of seeing how much it had gotten, gotten offset and the city went in and like, and fixed it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, re sort of, you know, repaved it and got rid of it without, and then scientists came back like, wait, what happened to our, you know, our record of, um, you know, of the, of the movement of the Hayward Fault. So there's another example of sort of a lack of communication between, you know, scientists who saw this as a valuable record and the city who saw this as a, you know, offset messed up curb that needed fixing. Um, and, and, you know, some sort of monument there would have, I think, been useful, <laughs> um, 
as a reminder to people of the the hazard, but then also as a protecting that you know that valuable record. So I don't I can't think of very many. Um, okay. Yeah. Not expensive, but uh, you have to have the right people on board to 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 get them put in place. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a it's a good example of where you know public history I think could you know do a better job of of telling a, a full story of history um, and rather than you know just focusing on um, you know maybe famous people or you know cool buildings um, and that's a good a good place again where we could you know better integrate disasters into our our historical thinking and. Um, and in, in this case, into public history as well. I think that would be a cool, um, you know, thing to try to to push. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your talk. Very interesting. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. I think we will uh, go ahead and end the formal recording now. But please stick around. There are plenty more questions popping up in the chat, um, and Shuna said she's be happy to hang around and talk with us some more. Um, so. Uh, Thanks again, Joanna, and thank you all for attending. Um, yes, thanks, and, everyone. <laughs> yeah, 